You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. If you would, open your Bibles and turn to the book of Malachi. We are um, starting a new series. That was bad, wasn't it? Did, did my mic blow up or is it still? Oh, it's still on. Okay, it's just... It's just running hot, right? It's okay. Just make sure that you guys can hear me is, is, the, uh, is the most important piece, right? Um, so as you're turning to the book of Malachi, we are beginning a new series this morning uh, entitled uh, A Theology of Giving. So uh, I, I know that we have mentioned this the last few weeks that we uh, would be doing this. And uh, actually what I anticipate is that as soon as everybody heard that, um, you would probably all find a good reason to go take vacation during the next four weeks. Um, but I am thankful. I'm thankful that that's not, uh, that's not the way we are here at the well. Um, the book of Malachi is a, is a fascinating book. And uh, if you're still searching for it and wondering where it's at, it is the last book of the Old Testament. So my Bible, it says New Testament here. And over here is the last part of Malachi. So that way you know if you're looking... Uh, if you find Matthew, all you got to do is go back a couple pages to your left, and, and you'll find it. Uh, as you are turning there, I kind of want to set us up with a, uh, a brief introduction of, of kind of why and, and where we are going to be headed. I think you'll see on the next slide here in just a moment um, kind of a, a bit of a rubric. Go to the next slide even after that one. There we go. Uh, I'm going to talk about this just for a moment as a, by way of introduction, Okay as we begin to talk about a theology of giving. Um, there's probably many uh, acceptable reasons why um, someone would preach through a series on giving. Okay? Um, some of those reasons um, might look like um, wanting to see giving increase. I think that's an acceptable reason to preach through a series on giving. Um, Another acceptable reason would be to help people understand just exactly what the Bible says about giving, right? Nothing wrong with that. An acceptable reason for sure. Um, I think also uh, another good reason would be to just provide some good, solid biblical instruction on stewardship, uh, which is another uh, term for money management, right? Um, these are all, I think, good reasons through for preaching through um, a series like this, but I want to say that those goals, for me, are secondary. Those are the secondary goals, almost byproducts of what I think is the main goal. And the main goal, you can see on the screen in front of you, for, for me, as I look at this, uh, is, that, uh, is that we would see transformation. Transformation in the area of our head, our heart, and our hands uh, in regards to our giving, okay? Um, now, every topic in the Bible, so again, brief, just try to introduce this, set this up before we get there, but every topic in the Bible that you could turn to and preach on really comes back to one issue. You would say the heart, right? Um, but another way of saying it would be the heart, the heart issue is, is worship, um, that's really where the issue is, is, is our concept and idea of what worship is and what worship means and what worship uh, looks like. Um, practical, um, practically speaking, 
the way that I um, try to get after this is exactly what you see on the screen. It's this concept of the head, the heart, and the hands. Um, so I think, I think a way that you could define worship, somebody were to ask you, hey, what is worship? Well, we know that worship is not just the music. Um, I think we slip into that sometimes thinking that worship is just the music, but we know it's not. Um, we know that worship is not just something you do uh, once a week on Sundays. Uh, it's not just something you do maybe midweek on Wednesdays when you're in your men's or your women's gatherings or, or gospel communities or community groups or whatever. Um, I, I think a way that you could define worship would be this way. Um, worship is the day-to-day rhythm of how I think about what I want and then actively obey those thoughts and desires. So I don't have that phrase on the screen, so I want to say it one more time because I think I think it does help us to unpack it. I think worship could be defined as the day-to-day rhythms of how I think about what I want and then actively obey those thoughts and those desires. So, so I, I want to get away from the idea of money for a minute and just go somewhere else by way of illustration because money alone is a sensitive topic, right? Uh, Donnie, Pastor Donnie was laughing at me earlier because he's like, you're going to use this illustration and think that it's less sensitive than money? Well, yeah, I, I, I guess I do. Uh, I, w- I want to use the illustration of maybe a man or a woman or a person who uh, maybe struggles with either pornography or anger issues, okay? Now, I know in the churches today, maybe you don't hear um, people talk about some of those issues, but I, I want to use those as il- illustrative of what I'm getting after in terms of worship. So think with me this way, right? Um, if, if, if I'm a person that struggles with pornography, um, then, then that struggle, that pornography use in my life, what does it prove? It proves that most likely I have a, a deep need to be wanted. I don't feel wanted. So I want to be wanted, right? That's my desire. And because I want to be wanted, and I believe the promise of pornography that I am wanted by this woman on a screen, or if it's a woman struggling, it's a man on the screen, okay? I want to be wanted, and, and, and I believe that the promise of that screen is true. I am wanted when I struggle with that. You follow me? Um, alternatively, I want you to think about somebody who maybe struggles with angry explosions. Anybody here struggle with angry explosions? Come on, folks. I cannot be one of three. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you can raise your spouse's hand if you would like to, as long as the spouse isn't going to explode in anger in the next few moments. <laughs> Um, so, so if you explode in anger, that's a struggle for you, right? Um, what does that prove? Uh, an angry explosion proves that typically, this is generally speaking, you, you could spend a long time on this, but typically uh, it proves that I want to control something that's out of my control, okay? Something is out of control and I want to control it and I can't, therefore I'm mad and if I just explode in anger, it's going to make everything better which is a really false way of thinking. It's like, if I explode in anger, why is it going to make this uncontrollable situation any better? Right? Logically thinking, but sin is never logical, agreed? So uh, what happens when I spin out of control really is what's happening when I spin out with an angry explosion. I believe this promise of anger. And the promise is my, my explosive anger is going to control something that I cannot actually control. So let me summarize the two illustrations for us. I really want to drill into this. If I summarize the two illustrations I've used, a pornography use promises acceptance and um, angry outbursts promise control. Therefore, if I'm a porn addict, what do I worship? My thinking, my desires, and then the outward behavior of my life, I worship the God of acceptance. Not necessarily God of porn, but the God of acceptance. 
Um, the angry person um, worships the God of, not anger, but control. You see how it's the thing beneath the thing that drives the thing on the outside? So this is, this is, again, this is like as short of a summary as I can give to us in terms of why I really believe that this is what worship is about. It's about our thinking, it's about our desires, and it's about the behavior and the activity of our lives that flow out of that. What happens is I, I believe the promises of those two false gods, control or acceptance, and then I wind up worshiping them with my behavior because I believe they're going to satisfy my desires, my wants. And what happens is my actions are the fruit. My actions, my behavior, my lifestyle is the proof of who I'm actually trusting, who I'm actually worshiping. Make sense? So many, many theologians, when, when they talk about this, would describe this pattern like you see on the screen. Thinking slash beliefs, they, they result in desires or, or both together. My desires can cause my thinking to be a certain way, and my thinking can cause my desires to be a certain way. This is why this whole topic of worship is so stinking complex, okay? There's, there's not like one specific route. Now, some of us are really affected by our wants and our desires. Some of us are really affected by our thinking, and both of them are interlaced together, and what comes out is behavior. This is the activity of the head, the heart, and the hands. The way that I think and the way that I believe has a formative effect on the desires of my heart. And the reverse is true too, okay? The, the desires of my heart, the things that I want, have a forming, just like forming a, a ball of clay into something, have a forming effect on the ways that I actually think and believe. So to say all that, I also want to say this, by way of just warning us to be careful as we think this way, I also want us to be careful that... Um, that as we think about this concept of worship, integrating the head with the heart, the heart with the head, and coming out in proof in the, in the activity of our lives, that it can be very, very, very easy for us to slip into two ditches on the either side of the road. Y'all have probably heard me use the illustration. Center of the road is the gospel, which frees us from our sin and enables us to be obedient to Jesus, right? Now, the, there's ditches on either side that you get stuck in as you're trying to drive the car of your life down that road. Those ditches are moralism, very deep, muddy, gross ditch, and legalism, very deep, gross ditch to be in. And, and here's the problem. Some of you heard me say this. A lot of times you, you get your friends down there to help you get the car of your life out of that ditch, and, and they're telling you what you need to do and how you need to believe and how you need to think and desire, and suddenly you come out of that ditch and you shoot across the road of the gospel and over into the other ditch. You just bounce like a yo-yo back and forth, legalism to moralism, right? And so I want to use that illustration by way of warning to us and just say, let's be careful of that as we think about the topic of how God wants us to worship him in our giving. Those ditches, moralism and legalism, they're, they're never going to result in what I would call sustained transformation. Never going to result in a kind of transformation that is actually sustainable in your life. Um, this is another way of talking about spiritual maturity. Okay? When you think about the way we grow, uh, um, from the time that we're babies to the time that we're grandparents, um, there's different stages of growth. Right? And, and we know when, when our kids are younger, it's hard to help them sustain in their ability to walk, 
right? And, but as they mature and as they strengthen, it's because they've got the right fundamentals in place, correct? It's the same with topics like this. Any topic in the Bible you talk about when it comes to spiritual maturity, if you're living in the ditch of legalism or moralism, but not in the center where the gospel is, which frees you once again to worship Jesus the way you were designed to because you're free, you're not in bondage. You want to stay out of those ditches because um, those ditches will not result in a sustained transformation. One, one last thought on moralism and legalism. I spent way too much time on page one of introduction. Have plenty of text to get through still. Um, Moralism and legalism are always going to result in inconsistency. They're always going to result in disobedience. Why? Um, here's the reason why. They're, they're going to create kind of a, and moralism is this. I, I, I'm going to do better because I just want to be a really good person. Mm, newsflash. There's only one good person. His name is Jesus. So stop trying to be a good person. That's moralism. Stop her, I'll bury you alive in a box. If you haven't seen the video, you should go watch the video. It's pretty hilarious. I'm not really going to bury you alive in a box. It's a joke. Don't look at me like that. It's a, there's a video on YouTube. You can find it. Anyways, moralism, that's where that leads you. Uh, legalism is, is similar to moralism. has the kind of same feel, but it's a little bit different. Legalism is more like, here's this legalist. Here's the set of rules I must follow to be acceptable to God. So moralism is like, I want to be a good person. Legalism is a little bit st a step further. It's more like, hey, I want to be really good so that God will, will love me. Um, sometimes legalism also then looks like, I just want to be a really good person so that everybody else believes I'm a good person. It's another way of explaining it in kind of maybe layman terms. Um, both of those, there's only one person who was good. There's only one person who fulfilled the law perfectly. It doesn't give us a, uh, it does give us a get out of jail free card. Uh, but it doesn't give us a get-out-of-jail-free card to then go back to sin, right? Uh, the freedom that we have now is to live our lives in a way that honors him. And again, it doesn't happen overnight. We're complex creatures. So um, this is why I say all of what I've just said by way of introduction and spent a good quarter of my time already um, on this, why, this is why I say that the goal of this series is to see transformation in our giving. Transformation of what we believe, transformation of what we desire and want, transformation of then what we do. So my hope in this series is to communicate faithfully a theology of giving according to God's word so that you can think about what God actually says on this topic. It's interesting if you have conversations with folks about giving, it's interesting all the unbiblical stuff that comes out of our mouths when it comes to this. It's like th when we come to stuff in the Bible about giving, it's like we just ignore it or we turn it into something else. Like, it's really strange. It's like, oh, it doesn't really apply to me. I just, yeah, find that fascinating. I could say more, but I'm going to leave that there. So I want to faithfully communicate what God's word says from the Old Testament and New Testament over the next few weeks. I hope to, along the way, then kind of uncover or unearth some of the ungodly heart desires that get deeply rooted deep down inside of us on this topic. Um, I also want to just show how God really is the ultimate satisfaction for those desires. And then I also hope to uh, provide some biblical instruction on how to live obediently as a transformed worshiper of Jesus. So in short, before we read the text together, the goal for me, preaching through this series, is to see God transform us as worshipers at the level of the head, the heart, and the hands in our giving. 
and what this feels like to me. We're a nine-year-old church. I did some mini money talks for a few months. There were like these little three or four minute blurbs before preaching. It was like preaching before preaching. <laughs> and, uh, but never really dug deep. This, this is the first series. It was the first sermon on giving in nine years of church planting um, for lots of reasons. What this feels like um, to me um, feels like a monumental task. Why? Most of you know me. If you don't, here's what you need to know. This is why this is a monumental task. I'm a kid who grew up poor. I grew up in the food stamp line, right? standing on the side of O Street while people drove by and hooted and hollered and made fun of us. Back then, you didn't get, you didn't get your food stamps on, a, on an EBT card privately. Um, you stood in a line and waited to get these little booklets with uh, little fake dollars in them that you would use, like fake money. And, and it, it, you were the laughing stock of the city, basically. Um, it was very visible and very shameful. Um, I didn't, and if you, I want you to think about this, I don't know how old all of you are here, it doesn't really matter, but I, I lived in that kind of a formation of my life, my head, my heart, and my hands. I lived in that formation until I was 18 years old. 17, moved out of my mom's house at 17. So you're talking 17 years of being formed by shame and guilt when it comes to this concept of money. So this feels like a monumental task to me to preach a series um, like this. Not only did I grow up in the food stamp line, but I didn't get brand new shoes. We wrapped duct tape around them um, when they got holes in them. I'm not kidding you. Walked around town with duct tape wrapped around my shoes. And um, here's the beauty of the gospel, though. When I think about that, that place that I grew up in, the beauty of the gospel is that I have been given infinitely, infinitely more than my sinful poor heart deserves. Um, when I think about the cross, the empty tomb, and the promise of Jesus' return, I think of these truths, and these truths set me free to study this, to think about it, to then preach it, and I pray that these truths would do the same for you as you hear and digest and hopefully become transformed. These truths, the cross was bloody, right? The cross was bloody because my salvation was costly. The tomb is empty. And, and, and so therefore, my enemies, in regards to this topic of giving, my enemies like greed, that's an enemy when it comes to this topic of giving. Um, selfishness is, is an enemy when it comes to the topic of giving. Um, or false security. A false security is crazy when it comes to money. Okay, nothing wrong with saving, nothing wrong with wiping out debt, yada, yada. But we give into this God of false security oftentimes when it comes to the way that we openly give the way that God has instructed us to, those enemies have been destroyed at the empty tomb. They're dead. Jesus is alive. So I need to remember those two truths. Third truth is this, the promise of heaven, right? When I think about the promise of heaven in regards to giving, that promise enables my wholehearted, obedient worship. Why? Why? Because money's not eternal. Period. Simple as that. With that said, please stand with me and let's read Malachi. We'll dive into the text after 18 minutes of introduction. We're going old school sermon today, I guess. So just you know, buckle your seatbelts and it'll be okay. Malachi chapter 3, we're looking at verses 6 through 12. Here's what uh, God says. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. 
From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil. And your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning, yeah? Let's, let's pray over God's word quick. <coughs> Father, thank you for your word. Pray, God, that you would come now and do just what... I believe, I think we all believe you want to do, which is to transform us as worshipers of you. We trust you to do this and more. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. All right, so the book of Malachi. Next slide, next couple of slides, you'll see a bit of a summary of the book of Malachi. I want you to kind of get your mind around who Malachi is and what's going on here. Um, I don't have a lot of time, obviously, left to uh, give all the information, but here's some of the things that Malachi is dealing with. Uh, The book of Malachi is basically a book that confronts God's people, okay? It's a prophetic book. Prophetic books are very confrontational, which is lots of fun for me, because if you know me, I'm a confrontational guy, um, when I'm just having fun. So, I don't know what that says. At any rate, Malachi is a book that confronts God's people, confronts them for various things, okay? Here's a few of the things. You'll see them listed on the screen. God is confronting his people through the prophet Malachi for being skeptical about his love. He's, uh, he's confronting them for practicing and, and kind of um, getting involved with unholy pagan worship. Um, he, he's also uh, confronting them for divorcing their wives and then marrying foreign idol worshiping wives. That's a crazy one. Divorced the wives of their youth and went off and found some... I guess, really hot wives somewhere else who worship foreign gods. God is confronting them for that, um, which is good. Um, He's confronting them for uh, claiming that God himself is unjust while they were at the same time oppressing the poor. Really interesting. God, you're so unjust while we practice injustice. How about that for craziness, right? He's confronting them also, as we're going to look at here in a little bit, for robbing God of the tithes and offerings he asked for. And then finally, towards the end, he, he's, uh, he's confronting them for refusing to serve God. Like, he actually confronts them for refusing to serve him. Like, you don't want to serve me. This is ludicrous. He confronts them for all those things. So the, the entire book of, of, of Malachi, if you were to um, try to summarize it, the entire book of Malachi is basically a record of God confronting one sin after the next as he works to cleanse the community of its rebellion while also calling them to repentance. 
Now, the text in front of us today, I'll give you a quick brief overview on the next slide. Text in front of us today, what we're going to see is basically four things. You're going to see the character of God contrasted with the character of his people. You're going to see the problem that existed among the people of Israel. Third, you're going to see the remedy for this sin problem in Israel. And then, finally, you're going to see the result of living in repentance. So take a look with me first at verses 6 through 7. Look at this character contrast that we see here. Character of God in verses 6 through 7 is contrasted with the character of Israel. I want you to notice... But you notice how God describes his own character in contrast with the character of his people. Look at what he says. He says, I, the Lord, do not change. Isn't that great to know that God doesn't change? I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. This is great. I don't change. Therefore, I didn't wipe you out. Oh, gosh. Yeah, I don't, if you have kids, you know exactly what this is like, right? Like, I brought you into this world, and you ought to be thankful I didn't take you out because I could. That's what's going on here. <laughs> from the days, verse 7, from the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes, have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God never changes, right? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. God's people, on the other hand, in this contrast, is that they're not the same as God. Though we were created to be like God, we're not the same as God. We've turned away from God's law. That, that's what he's saying. You've turned away from my law. <clears throat> not only have turned away from God's law, but in this text, they're guilty of breaking what is called a covenant. Covenant is an agreement. They're, they're guilty of breaking this agreement with God. They, they were no different, he says, than your disobedient ancestors. That's really heavy. This heavy stuff. But because of God's never-changing character, his people had not been consumed by his anger against them for their sin. Here's the question I think we need to ask. Why would God's people need to be reminded that he could, in fact, wipe them out, but had not done so because of his never-changing character? Why do they need to be told this? <coughs> I think that's the question. Here's what I think. I think God is reminding them that he had not wiped them out. Why? I believe that God wanted to call them to repentance. That's what I believe God wanted to do. And I believe it's important in this walk of repentance to remember who God is and who we are. How big he is and how finite we are. It's good for us to remember that because then when we start to see how gracious and loving and merciful he, he has been as he has condescended from heaven to us to not only walk with us and save us, but to put his spirit in us. I think, I think this shows us the picture of God's grace and his mercy and his love and his closeness to us. But we have to start with the fact that God is unfathomably untouchable by little old us, and he could wipe us out in a moment, but has not done so. His heart is to turn us back in repentance, right? What is the problem, though? We know what the problem is because we read it. Look at the problem with me in verse 7 through 9. 
when God describes the problem that existed among the people of Israel, he gets very specific. He doesn't beat around the bush. God's not a passive-aggressive God. He says, but you say, how shall we return? He sets up this kind of this weird conversation, like he's thinking like, okay, you, you're going to ask me. I'm telling you, you need to return to me. And you're going to ask me, what do you mean I need to return to you? What are you talking about? I'm good, right? And God's saying, <coughs> is man going to rob God? So it's this question answer, kind of a cat and mouse game, so to speak, between the two of them. <coughs> and he sets it up and he says, hey, will man rob God? Yet He goes, hey, you are robbing me. It's almost like asking the question, can man rob God? And he, it's, a rhetorical, it's a rhetorical kind of an argument, right? And, and then he basically goes, of course you are. Yes, you are robbing me. And, and, and you say, well, oh, how have we robbed you? You robbed me in your tithes and your contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me. Catch this phrase, the whole nation of you. I, I think, and I could be wrong. Somebody should probably check me on this. I think what I'm about to say is right in terms of the sense. I don't know if it's right in terms of the phrase, but I'm going to toss out there anyways. Love to be checked on it. I think in this letter, in this book, the whole nation of you, I think this might be the only time it shows up in there from my memory. Um, out of the list of sins that God is confronting, there's only one that the entire nation is guilty of, and it's this one. All the rest of them that he's confronting, only some of them were guilty of those. At times, he's only confronting the priests. At times, he's only confronting the husbands. Get it? In this one, he's like, the whole nation of you is guilty of this. So the specific problem here that we see is that God's people are robbing him, right? <coughs> Think about this. They're walking in complete disobedience to his command to give tithes and contributions. Another word for contributions is offerings, over and above your tithe. Tithe simply means 10%. Um, the entire nation, though, is guilty of that sin. And because of that nationwide sin, what's happening? They're living under a curse instead of a blessing. That's helpful, I think, to remember when you're thinking about this, when you're reading this. It's helpful to remember what the entirety of God's commands to his people actually rested on. Okay? So, so think about, think about the, the law of God, the commands of God like a house. And it sits on a foundation. Okay? And the foundation of that law, the foundation of all the Old Testament and the commands is Jesus, right? We know that from the New Testament. Um, and Jesus lived it out perfectly. But then you might ask, well, is there, is there any proof of that in the Old Testament? Yes, in the Old Testament, all throughout, before God even gives the laws, he begins with this foundational truth. I'm calling you to live this way. Why? Because I am your redeemer. I brought you out of slavery to your enemies. You can see this in Exodus and Deuteronomy, Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5. Every time the law begins, he starts with saying, I am the God who brought you up out of slavery. I'm the God who saved you. I'm the God who redeemed you. I'm the God who set you free. And because that's who I am, that motivation now is meant to motivate you to live obediently. So, so, so God's people are now expected to worship God as their Savior. And in this context, by giving a tenth of all their income, among other things as well as giving the offerings over and above that tithe to help the poor and the needy. You can see this in Numbers 18. That's a place to go if you want to research the tithe and where that was set up in the law. But instead of worshiping God, 
instead of worshiping God through the giving of their tithes and their offerings, instead of honoring God with a tenth of their income, according to Proverbs 3.9, Israel had actually become God's enemies, right? They had become God's enemies by keeping for themselves what actually belonged to God. They became God's enemies by either taking or, or what he says, robbing him of what was rightly his. Now, the idea of this blows my mind. I know where I've been in my life in regards to this. <laughs> this it's crazy when you start thinking about giving a tenth of your income away to God through the ministry of a local church. Depending on how much you make a year, if you make $50,000 a year, that's $5,000 a year you're supposed to start with. If you make $100,000, that's $10,000. Yeah, how much that is a month. It's more than a house payment for most of us, okay? This is... I know we're not talking about small things. It's just crazy when you think about these amounts. <coughs> Israel had become his enemy, though, by robbing him. And, and on top of that, they're neglecting being generous. They're not even giving their offerings either, he says. So which means they're not helping the poor and they're not helping the needy in their community. Although, what my, here's been my experience. In my life, I don't know about yours, I would have no problems giving 20 bucks away to a guy on a street corner or somebody that called me because they had a need. Giving 10% away was another thing. So I think that this is probably something that could have been happening in Israel that every once in a while they would give away a little bit and kind of pat themselves on the back like, oh, I could have done my good deed. I know I'm not giving you 10%, God, but you're gracious. So, Or you've changed from the Old Testament to the New Testament. It's usually one of those arguments in our minds. Okay, <coughs> So... I, that's my translation for us. I don't know what's happening in Israel. All I know is there was disobedience present, right? Um, which proves there was a worship issue in them. So this is without a doubt a, this is a heavy topic, right? God's saying you're robbing me. I mean, who in their, again, who in their right mind wants to go rob the God of the universe? Are you insane? Well, we just talked about Psalm 30 last week, right? Doesn't his breath turn like forests into pine needles or something? Right? Like his, his breath like turns the, the trees into sawdust and toothpicks. And I want to, do I really want to rob that God? And yet I know I have. I know that I've been in that place. So this is definitely a very heavy, very serious problem for the people of God, right? This is a serious problem for us to be thinking about. Um, what could God's people do? What, what could they do to make things right? What could they do to get their worship dysfunction straightened out? What, what, what beliefs need to change in their minds? What desires need to change in their hearts? What behavior need to change in their lives? Here's what I thank God for. I thank God for the fact that he never leaves us in a pit of our sin. He never just walks in and goes, you dirty, rotten scoundrels, you sinners, and then walks out of the room. He doesn't do that. Thank God he's a... He's a truthful and honest, but he's a gracious and merciful, faithful God. He never changes. He gives us the remedy for our sin-infected worship dysfunctions. Right? So look with me at, at verses 10 through 11. Look at the remedy with me here. I think it's easy to look at the remedy in verses 10 through 11 and just go to moralism or legalism. Oh, I just need to start giving 10%. Well, yeah, that's probably part of it. Yes, we won't hide from that. <coughs> but the heart needs to be right before we get there. Okay. So in these verses, God does explain the remedy for sin. Um, again, it's really encouraging to know that, 
God is the God of remedies, okay? So lighten this a minute, again, um, jokingly, um, tongue-in-cheek. If you lighten this a little bit, you just think about how God loves to help us out of our sin pits. Um, He loves to help his people out of their shackles, right? He loves to set people free from bondage. What God does is he grabs the porn addict by the hand, helps that porn addict see that he's fully accepted by the God who has rescued him from his slavery to porn, right? Um, he, he loves to grab the out-of-control angry person, to go back to these illustrations, loves to help that angry person who's out of control to help him to see that he can trust a Savior who is in complete control of every seemingly out-of-control circumstance. This is what God does. This is the transformation that takes place in our hearts. So likewise, God also loves to grab those who have robbed him, which blows me away because I have guns in my home, and when people want to come rob me, I don't want to grab them by the hand and help them. I want to shoot them. It's never happened yet. Thank you, Jesus. We can all say amen to that too. Um, but God is, this, God's different than I am, right? God restrains that. Wouldn't be wrong to shoot said person who comes into my house to rob me. God's different than me. God could, but he doesn't. He grabs those who have robbed him, grabs them by the hand, takes a walk with them, helps them to see that he has actually provided a way for them to once again trust and obey him in their worship of him. So I want you to notice this remedy. Look at what he says, verses 10 and 11. He says, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. This does not mean literal food. Um, This means spiritual food. And thereby put me to the test. It's the only place in the Bible where God says, you can test me in this. You can test me in this one thing. Test means trust. You can trust me in this. So he does say, you trust me in this. But test is a different sense of trust. Thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. Parentheses, see if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts is a key phrase. The Lord of hosts means that he is in charge of the biggest army who has ever existed and ever will exist. He's the God of angel armies. That's where this comes from, is the Lord of hosts. The essence of the remedy here when you read all of this text is simply that God's people need to do two things. What do you think those two things are? Trust and obey. And what's the outcome? Be blessed. Trust, obey, be blessed. (coughs) Say it one more time. Trust, obey, be blessed. Thank you for saying it with me. Very good. God literally instructs his people to put me to the test, right? Or or trust in me in a way that I will prove myself to you. Do this by bringing the full tithe into the temple. Why? So that God's word may be preached again. If you go back and you study the numbers and the Deuteronomy and the Exodus passages, if you look at those, you'll see that the nation of Israel was to tithe by household within each tribe. There's actually, if you're a mathematical geek, which I know there's a few of you in here, Yes, I said geek. I'm a theology geek, so it's okay. If you're a mathematical geek, though, you can do the math, and you can decide if each tribe made X amount of money and it was flat across the board. They all, every tribe made $50,000, right? 
and they all tithe 10% off it, but the Levites were its own tribe, and they didn't get a house, and they didn't get a place to live except for the temple, and their job was to bring people to worship, to preach God's word, and so on and so forth. The tithes from those tribes would come in and would create like 120% together, which means there would be money left over in the temple for the rest of the work of the temple. Um, it's a really interesting thought. There was another very smart guy who led me into that whole idea. I never thought of it, but it blew me away. Basically, God's house would have an overabundance so that his word could be preached, so that people could be trained and led in worship, so that the, the nations around them could be um, reached and evangelized. Okay? That's, that's the picture of what you see taking place. <clears throat> so, to bring the full tithe into the temple so that God's word can be preached again, so that God's people can be fully blessed instead of fully cursed. So you think about this idea of worshiping God, right? Head, heart, hands. Um, worshiping God with our heads, our hearts, and our hands, what it always revolves around is trusting God as my Savior and obeying Him as my King so I can be blessed by Him as my Lord. Let me say this again. Uh, and a lot of times we like a Savior, but we don't like a King, and we don't like a Lord. We don't like to be ruled over. Okay. When, when we worship God with our heads, our hearts, and our hands, what it's, what it's revolving around is trusting God as my Savior. You saved me. Now I can obey you as my king because you're a good king. You want what's best for me. And in so doing, I am then blessed by him as my Lord. Why would anyone want to continue living in a cycle of mistrust and disobedience that leads to cursing? Why? Why would we want to somehow rationalize it away like it's not that bad? Like somehow the sin of anger and the sin of pornography is worse than the sin of not starting with giving your tithe. How is that even? Why do we do that? Why would we think that way? Why would we compare one sin to the other and think those are worse so I'm not that bad? This is what I think Israel is doing. This is what I think we're probably guilty of in America, especially. We are a spoiled, rich, wealthy nation. We are. Those are heavy things to think about, right? I'd love to lighten this more, <laughs> and I don't know how. That's, that's part of my weakness. My hope as we move through the rest of this is that God would encourage us to. I can't think of anybody who'd want to live under cursing, though. I would think that the result of living in obedient trust as we worship God should be attractive, right? It would be attractive somehow. I think that's where it comes into this last verse when we talk about the result. Once again, even as I kind of wrote out what I thought God would want me to say here, it was hard for me to get away from some of the negative results. And maybe there's, by God's grace, maybe this is important. It's in verse 12, um, God describes the results of living in repentance. Um, when you think about the me-centered philosophy of the world that we live in, right? I think we have to go there, don't we? Don't we have to think about that for a minute if we're really going to get head, heart, and hands checked? When you think about the me-centered philosophy of the world we live in, I, I, I believe it has so infected the people of the church that we don't look any different than the outside world. In fact, oftentimes I think we look worse. We talk about a generous God to people while withholding what he commands us to give. It, it's crazy. 
<coughs> we talk about a saving God while we rob him of what belongs to him. I, I, I've been guilty of this. Have. You don't have to look very far to find statistics regarding Christians and their wealth. Um, one author, and in fact, uh, back there by the, on the coffee table, and even on uh, the tables there were, um, does anybody have one of those? Is there books on the coffee tables? Money books? Maybe they're not there. Maybe I took them off. I put them in the back. They're on the back. On the, yeah, here's one right here. Heather, hold that up. Um, so the author of this book, good friend of mine, <laughs> like I'm really important, I know an author of a book. Okay, big deal. <laughs> I didn't write the book, so it's not that important, but my friend wrote the book, so I am important. Anyways, author of this book, name is Bob. It's not Bob the Tomato, but you can call him that if you ever see him. Um, I'm sure he would enjoy that. What he, he, he says in this book, um, here's some statistics. You're going to see it on the screen. <coughs> Average American holds 3.7 credit cards. I don't know what the point seven is. I, I don't even know how you get a point seven credit card, but 3.7 credit cards. It's kind of like the, uh, you know, the, the whole idea of America, you know, with 2.5 kids in a, in a garage, two-star garage, weird. He, the average American holds 3.7 credit cards, owes over $7,000 in credit card debt. Average mortgage debt for the average American stands at about 150000 Average student loan debt is around 32000 And here's, here's something he says, you know, while, while debt has become a fact of life, an unquestioned reality of our normal everyday existence, when debt becomes the barrier, to worshiping God with our money. It speaks loudly to the God that we actually do worship. Not necessarily the God of debt, most likely the God of false security. I want to press the issue a little bit further. I think I could have probably stopped there. But I think it's, again, it's important to press a little bit further. So I want you to think about it this way. Um, Here's the thing, if if I'm going to talk about the result of obediently trusting God and our giving, it's important for us to understand the negative result of our disobedience. If we're even going to latch on to a vision of the positive result of of obedient repentance, right? You got to see the negative before we can see the the good news uh, and the positive. So um, when you're thinking about the negative result of our disobedience in terms of what the world sees, uh, the world around us sees in us. That's the way we're looking at it right now. That's going to lead us into what I think the text actually says. (coughs) If you look at a 2008 report, again, in this book that my friend wrote named Bob the Tomato, I hope he listens to this message. (laughs) According to a 2008 report from uh, the Oxford University Press, uh, substantiated also by a dude named Christian Smith, who is a sociologist from Notre Dame, so must be a really smart guy. He's got letters after his name. Here's what he says. Next slide. Only 27% of American Christians tithe. Let that sink in. Can you imagine if only 27% of the American church was set free from pornography? Can you, remember, can you imagine if only 27% of the church was able to restrain their anger? It's just a, just a way of like fleshing this out. The average median annual giving for an American Christian is around $200. That's nuts. It's crazy. Uh, 25% of American Protestants give nothing at all. It's nuts. Uh, 5% of givers provide 60% of the money given. That's crazy. Let me say 5% of givers provide 60% of the money given. I've always heard this term in business and in the church, that 20% of your givers support 80% of your budget 80% of your budget is supported by 20% of your givers. 
Um, here's, here's these last two blew me away. Um, Christians give on average 2.9% of their household income to charity. While on average, non-Christians give 3.3%. What does that tell you? And maybe these stats don't fit you. Those are, those are scathing. Those break my heart. So the world around us gives more than we do. That's what these stats are telling me. Christians um, come across as stingy people who really love to rail against abortion and homosexuals. And a lot of times rail against secondary things like drinking and smoking. But when you start talking about what the Bible actually talks about, they go running for the hills. It's crazy. It's crazy. So, it seems that Christians could be very stingy while proclaiming that they serve a generous God who gave everything to save them from the penalty of their sins as they rob him of what is rightly is. That's, that's what I'm seeing in the text, right? So that's the negative result of mistrust, disobedience, and living under a curse. What the world sees in us leaves them wondering why they should even bother. Why would I want to be a part of that? Here's the beauty of this text. Okay, now that I feel like I've beat the crap out of us with a hammer. <laughs> when you latch onto the fact, when you really latch onto this in your head and in your heart, this fact that Jesus literally paid the debt for our sin. He literally paid the debt for your sin with every ounce of his broken body and every ounce of his shed blood. When you grab a hold of that, I think then and only then are you able to lay hold of the remedy for the sin problem. And the remedy is trust and obey and live in blessing of God's presence. And then when you lay a hold of that, here's what happens. The result of your worship is what verse 12 says. All the nations, listen to this, look at it. All the nations will call you blessed for you shall be a land of delight. When was the last time you heard somebody say, the church is delightful? I, I really think when it comes to worship, I think all the other issues that we could talk about, anger, pornography, greed, gossip, slander, I think, I think this is so central. There's something that happens inside of us when we relinquish and let go of what God has said. Give this to me. Something transformative and formative that happens inside of us that what he's saying here will make you delightful to the outside watching world. The result of verse 12 is a missional result. The outside world would then see that we put our money where our mouths are, right? Um, they, they would see that, that we give even more money than they do. What would that cause? It would cause those on the outside of the church body to notice the blessing of God on his people. You see, God's mission to seek and to save the lost through the person and the work of our crucified, risen, and returning Savior, th- this is meant, it's meant to be at the heart of the church. 
And I think it's never more visible to others outside of our church family than how we spend, and not only how we spend our money, but how we give our money. That's what I see in the text. I want to conclude this way. You can tell a lot about a person by looking um, at their bank statement, right? Tell, tell a lot about what goes on inside of that person's life. Um, and Israel's bank statement proved they were robbing God. But here's the thing, God is merciful and gracious. He didn't wipe them out, right? <laughs> what a beautiful, beautiful reminder. Didn't wipe them out. Gave them a way out of their worship dysfunctions. That's what he did. God was calling them to repentance and he was promising in the midst of this to take care of them. And the question that you're left with at the end is, are they going to trust God? Are they going to obey God? Are they going to be blessed by God? Or are they going to continue living under a curse for the entire world to see? Now the author doesn't answer the question for us. But we're left with some of the same questions. What will we believe about God in our minds in regards to this topic? What will we want to do in our hearts and what will we do with our hands? Will, will we believe that God has changed the expectations of worshiping our Savior in giving? Uh, will we desire to compromise in our worship of our Savior because of some like, visible barriers such as debt or lack of budgeting or overspending? How are we going to behave moving forward? Will we behave the same way as we always have, the same as our ancestors have, the same as the rest of the nation does? right? How will we behave? What will we be known for? Or will we behold the cross of Christ? Will we behold the cross of Christ and we will see that at the cross our salvation was costly? Will we look through that door of that empty tomb and see, like I said earlier, that our enemies on this topic of giving, our enemies greed, false financial security, because it's not real, selfishness. Will we see that those enemies have been destroyed and then be able to walk in freedom from those enemies? Will we hold fast to the hope of heaven? Will we worship God in the giving of our tithes and offerings because we know that money is not eternal? Those are the questions. Will we rob God or will we trust and obey and be blessed as we worship God? My dad, when I first started this journey, I mean, I got saved 21 years ago. I remember right away, my, my dad didn't wait nine years <laughs> to preach a sermon about giving to me. <laughs> Thank God for my dad. Right away, he's like, Joe, if you're going to get out of the bottom of this heart of worship thing, start giving, bro. Start, start giving, start worshiping with your money. And he, would, he said this to me all the time. As I would call him and be like, are you kidding me? I got to write a check this big. And he'd go, do you know how big that check was when he lost all his blood? And I'm like, oh, geez, dad. Click. Fine, right? I mean, it was just discipleship, mentoring, accountability that gave me. But one thing he would always say to me is he'd say, it is better to have God bless the 90% that he gives you rather than have him curse the 100% that you steal from him. And I'm like, sheesh. Thank God I have an Italian father. <laughs> just say it straight, you know. Better to have God bless the 90% that he gives us rather than have him curse the 100 So Here's what I'm thankful of. Here's what I think is encouraging as we close this up. It's encouraging to know that God didn't only give me 10% of the breath I'm breathing right now. <laughs> you know? I mean, he gave me 100% of the breath I'm breathing right now. He didn't give me only 10% of my abilities. So I can actually earn a paycheck, right? 
He gave me 100% of my abilities. He didn't give me 10% of my house. Thank God, because we're a large family, it'd be hard to live in 10% of my house. It'd be like my bedroom, cram nine of us in there. Ooh, wow. Give me 100% of that. I mean, you know, the list can go on and on, right? But how about this? Thank God he didn't just give you and I 10% of the salvation he offers. <laughs> he gave us 100% of that salvation. There's only one place he actually talks about 10%. And, you know, there's this old serpent who came down a tree and was like, did God really say that? Like, oh, he's trying to get you to question God. And the crazy thing is, like, if you think about it in terms of the trees that were in the garden, when you go back to the Garden of Eden, right, there was like, there's only one tree you shouldn't be touching eating from. Did you catch that? It's the, when Eve like spoke this back, um, she added something to God's word. And that's what we'd love to do that. And I thank God that he's so gracious. I could go on forever about this. He gave us 100% of what we need. He gave us 100% of his word, not just 10%. There's only one place he talks about 10%. Training wheels of generosity. And it's in this area. But it's an area that we struggle with, I know. Thank God he is who he is. Thank God that the cross is bloody. Thank God that the tomb is empty. Thank God that heaven is eternal. Thank God that he is immeasurably generous. At the end of the day, I want to mimic that. Not, I don't want to be in the ditch of legalism or, or moralism. I just, I want to be in the middle where the gospel is and just go, I just go, God, I want to live free of this. And that's what I want for the rest of us. So I, I pray that, that God would use this, not just this sermon, but the next few weeks to uh, bring us there. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Pray as we close that you would help us to worship you now with our mouths as we sing. We trust you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.